We're going to take a quick break tonight since things are a little bit different. We're going to take a quick break from our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts. We're going to be in the Old Testament book of First Chronicles tonight. The Selective Service System is an agency of the government which maintains information on those potentially subject to military conscription. That's how it's described. We know it commonly as the draft, right? I have my draft card somewhere. I I guess I should know where it is, but it's too late for me, so... Historically, men in the United States ages 18 to 25 had to register and respond to the call to join the military should the need arise. While conscription ended more than 45 years ago, the system does remain in place despite some recent court challenges. Now, I was surprised to learn, it's just one of the many things I didn't know, I was surprised to learn that there's another list maintained by the SSS because in 1989, Congress ordered that agency to put in place an additional system that was, quote, capable of drafting persons qualified for practice or employment in a health care and professional occupation if such a special skills draft should be ordered. So a separate draft for health care professionals. It's called the Health Care Personnel Delivery system. And this plan includes both men and women ages 20 to 54 in 57 different job categories. Now, I'm guessing if you became a nurse or a doctor, you probably knew about that, but I didn't know that this system was in place. While it seems like the general draft of men into the armed services may be a thing of the past, the, constrict, the conscription excuse me, of individuals into particular jobs just might be what happens in the future, depending on how things shake out. The idea that led to the creation of the healthcare personnel delivery system could be extended to other fields and assignments as well. It's not just a conspiracy theory. During the meeting of the House Armed Services Committee, Representative Martha McSally, who's herself a former Air Force fighter pilot, had this to say concerning how this kind of draft might be adapted in the future. She said, it could be medical positions. We could need cyber warriors. There are all sorts of positions we'd need the country to mobilize for. And she was talking about doing these specialized drafts of certain types of workers. I got to thinking about conscription and the idea of setting up an administration and jobs for what might come in the future because of a passage in 1 Chronicles. There in chapters 22 through 26, we're given the story of how David, King David, put in place an an administrative system for staffing the temple and maintaining it generation after generation. Now, we have to recognize that there was no temple at this point. It was just a dream in his mind's eye. And David knew that he would never see the temple built in his lifetime. Yet he dedicated the last years of his life making plans, storing up supplies, and conscripting thousands of Levites into very particular areas of service. What's amazing is that even though the Levites were conscripted into their work, based solely upon the fact that they were born into a particular tribe and into a particular clan... They were told what they would be doing with their lives, were given no indication that there was ever a lawsuit against the king and his system. That would be silly, of course. But there are no stories of some group of Levites coming to the king and refusing the draft. Now, we do have a story like that with two and a half tribes, right? Instead of going into the land, they said, eh, we don't want to. And then a provision had to be made, and they were left outside of the land, and it was a big problem on lots of different ways. But we don't have any stories like that when it comes to the Levites. Now, on the flip side, 
not only did we not see people complaining about this conscription, there also wasn't, a, David didn't establish a religious police force that went around making sure the Levites did what they were commanded to do by the king. There was no religious police going around and saying, show me your papers, show me your clan, what are you supposed to be doing right now? Very interesting to me. The arrangement was, for this tribe, the tribe of Levi, God was their inheritance. And they had the rare and precious privilege of working in his house and representing him among the people. Now, as Christians in the church, there are many ways in which our calling is similar to that of the Levites. First of all, each and every one of us is conscripted into service in the world and in the house of God. It's not something that, well, I'll volunteer to serve the Lord if I'd like to. It's by virtue of being born again into the family of God, every single one of us has been conscripted into that great commission, right? Like the Levites, we've got different callings and duties within God's house. Like the Levites, our work continues generation after generation. Long after we're gone, there are others who continue the work after us. And so when we come across a passage like this one in First Chronicles, not usually one of our favorite books when we're moving through the Bible, but when we come across a passage like this one, it can provide some encouraging devotional insights for us as we apply principles that we see here and, and attach them to our own lives and our own place of work in the Lord uh, and in His house. Now, in our limited time tonight, we won't have the luxury of going through all five chapters, so don't worry, but I'd encourage you to listen through it sometime this week. Now, with the advent of all these apps, you know, like Version and the different eSword and Logos and all these Bible apps, it's really easy to be listening to the Word of God. When you're in the car, you can just load it up and play it, and it'll play through all of these chapters in no time flat. And so I'd encourage you to read through it or listen to it sometime this week or in the coming days. So instead of going through it verse by verse tonight, let me set the stage, and then we can examine what was established by David in broad strokes and hopefully take some of the characteristics to heart. David wanted to build God a permanent house in Jerusalem, a a real edifice, a building, as opposed to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Now, God had to come and tell him that he would not be the man to do it, rather that his son Solomon would be the temple builder. But David heard that and he thought, okay, I'm into that. But just because I'm not going to be the guy to cut the ribbon doesn't mean that I can't be a part of the work. And he was a very significant part of the work. He poured himself into the preparation process from that time forward. He was gathering materials. He was getting people on board. He was drawing up plans. In chapter 22, we read about him storing up iron and precious metals and what is called an immeasurable quantity of bronze for all that would need to be made for the temple and its tools. We see him appointing stone cutters and getting cedar imported from overseas. It says this in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 5, the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly great and famous and glorious in all the lands. Therefore, I must make provision for it, David said. And so David made lavish preparations for it before his death. Now, of course, the temple would not just need stuff but it would need a lot of staff in order to operate properly. And so in the chapters that follow, 22 through 26, we see the various clans of Levi being assigned to different aspects of temple work. And being chronicles, there are a bunch of lists of numbers and names of who was who and what they would be doing. But there are some characteristics that stand out as you work through this plan of David. 
first and most general, as you read through the list and through the assignments, you're reminded again and again that it was a family affair. Everything is structured according to household, father and son. It's a very big emphasis in the language. There's a great uh, highlighting of clans and fathers and of which line of Levi each servant was from. Now, Israel, of course, was a tribal society, and there were very specific rules that God had put into place concerning tribe and heritage during that dispensation. Only Levites could serve God in his house in this special way, and only Levites from the line of Aaron could be priests, for example. Most of us know that. But now in the church, things aren't like that. We do not have that kind of tribal separation. In fact, Specifically, the Bible says in the New Testament that tribal separation is broken down. We are all part of God's holy priesthood. If you're a Christian, if you're born again, you are one of God's royal priests, the New Testament says. The walls of ethnicity and heritage are broken down so that we can be united in Christ. But one way this constant reference in the text in Chronicles to tribe and fathers and sons and families, one way that that can speak to us as we seek to apply this to ourselves on a devotional level is to remember that in the church we are a family brought together under Christ's loving headship and we're commanded to love and serve one another like a family. We're not just affiliates. We're not just co-workers. We're not just people who, I was thinking about it the other day, like, yo, hey, I'm wearing a certain baseball cap and that guy's wearing the same baseball cap. We're fans of the same team. That's not what the family of God is supposed to be and the church is supposed to be. We are a family brought together under the Lord. You know, if you were a Levite serving in the temple, you were literally kin with your co-workers. But spiritual brotherhood and sisterhood is, is to be just as real. The epistles, for example, they just assume that we're going to regard one another as brothers and sisters, that we're going to have that kind of brotherly love for one another. They don't go at deep length to say, okay, now you're going to have to reorient your thinking and, and really realize that you're brothers. And they just say, hey, the brethren, your brothers, if you see a brother doing this, if you see a sister doing this, hey, talk to my sister here and ask her to do this. It's assumed that we're going to treat each other as a loving family. Not that we just have some loose association, but that we consider one another and operate together and communicate with each other the way a real loving family does. Now, in chapter 26, verse 13, we see they were assigned by family. In chapter 25, verse 7, they're trained by family. They would be undertaking their assignments together, learning together, supporting each other, and helping each other along. And what a great reminder for local churches that we're to operate as a loving, unified family here. We're to be a family here at Calvary Hanford, growing together and in it for the long haul. Certainly, it's not always easy. Family relationships, we understand that in our regular lives. And it's even more difficult when you have a large family all coming together and all sorts of different things going on. But what a wonderful thing the family is when it's operating properly, and, and that's what the Lord wants for us. We also notice in these chapters that in this work, there was a lot of different kinds of work to do, open to a wide variety of those called to serve. First Chronicles 25, 8 says this, they cast lots for their duties, young and old alike, teacher as well as pupil. Now, throughout this passage, we're told in multiple places that young and old alike had a share. Uh, that it wasn't just, okay, just find me the people with the PhDs, find me the people with the, you know, the best ability, and only they are going to serve. No, teachers and students, heads of families, and younger brothers, one verse says, young and old. 
Now, of course, under the Old Testament law, there were a lot of exclusions. I'm not trying to avoid that. You had to be a man, for example. You had to be a tribe uh, from the tribe of Levi to do this work. And even if you were a man from the tribe of Levi, if you were crippled or deformed or handicapped in some way, you were also excluded from temple work. That was what was going on in the uh, Mosaic law. But in the church... Those distinctions are all gone when it comes to serving the Lord. In Christ, we're told there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. And so now we're all one body and one building being built up as God's house together. And we find that throughout the Bible and throughout history that God can use anyone to do his work. And he loves to use the anyones of the world, of his people, to do his work. David himself is a really great example of this, of what God can do. He's not from the tribe of Levi, but look at what God did through his life, the magnificent ways in which he glorified himself through this willing servant. God took the ruddy, afterthought shepherd boy, and he made him a warrior and a poet and a king and an instrument maker and a prophet. God worked through David in the arts, in administration, in advancing the kingdom. And it was all because David had a servant's heart and because he sought the Lord. It wasn't because he was the smartest or he was from the right heritage or anything like that. He was a willing servant. And the Lord said, yeah, I use willing servants. Those of my people who are seeking after me and, and, and want to go my way, I'm going to use them to do things. When we look at the work of God through his church, there's a lot to do. And as you read through these chapters 22 through 26, you see there's all kinds of different work that the different Levites did. Some of it more manual, some of it more musical, there's all kinds of different work. And there's a lot to do in the local church as well. And I don't just mean here locally, though there's a lot to do even here. But in God's work globally, there's much more work and many more opportunities than any of us could hope to accomplish in a lifetime. And the good news is that there is a place for every single one of us to serve God. Young or old, master or apprentice, skilled or unskilled, that doesn't matter. God says, I'm just looking for people who want to work and who want to be used by me and want to be filled with my spirit to overflowing so that rivers of living water can come out of them and impact the world around them. Now, it's true. Some positions in the temple administration required capable individuals. That's the word that's used. In chapter 26, we're told, for instance, about specific work of officers and judges in the temples. And here's what we read in 26 verse 31. A search was made in the 40th year of David's reign, and strong, capable men were found among them at Jazer in Gilead. And so even here, it wasn't all just luck of the draw. I said, okay, well, but for this position, we are looking for a certain capability, a certain uh, skillfulness, a certain kind of person that can fill this position. Now, in the church, there are some areas set down in the New Testament which require particular capability or qualifications. That's fine. But the point is there's no one in the whole family of God who God is not interested in including in his work, Right? Even in this Chronicles passage, you never see some clan of Levi, some family of Levites showing up and saying, okay, we're ready to be assigned. And David going, yeah, I don't have anything for you guys. There's nothing for you to do. Why don't you guys just go home? That never happens. The multiplied thousands of Levites, each and every one of them had a place in the work. And, and, and David says that, man, there's a lot to do. Some did this and some did that. 
Not only were there different kinds of work to do, it was a work that would have to be done perpetually. Here's a couple of examples. David said this in 22 verse 14. Notice I have taken great pains to provide for the house of the Lord. 3,775 tons of gold, 37,750 tons of silver, bronze and iron that can't be weighed because there's so much of it. I have also provided timber and stone. But listen to this. You will need to add more to them. And then in 26, verse 27, it says, they dedicated part of the plunder from their battles for the repair of the Lord's temple. Now that really struck me because they were making a a preventative maintenance plan and setting things aside for the repair of a temple that hadn't even been built yet. Not one stone was up there on the temple mount. And they were saying, okay, but eventually we're going to need to repair this wonderful building. And so let's start planning for that and let's start setting aside for that and let's start assigning people for that. This is real thoughtfulness. And the idea was they said, hey, this is going to be a perpetual work. It's going to outlast David. It's going to outlast Solomon. It's going to outlast this class of Levites and go on to their sons and their sons' sons and all of their families after them. It was a perpetual work. And the work was supposed to continue until the end, until God came to reign with his people. And of course, the temple, we understand the history of Israel. The temple was destroyed. But look at the principle here. The work was just to continue generation after generation. And the same idea is meant to permeate our service to the Lord. You know, I'm to live as a lifelong servant of the king until he calls me home or brings his kingdom here. And then, even when he brings his kingdom to the earth, we'll still be serving him just in different ways. But if the Lord calls me home before he returns for his church, well, the work's still going to continue. It's just going to be continued by others. And so while we are living, thinking about the day-to-day life of a Christian and day-to-day ministry, how we can serve the Lord and glorify the Lord today, right now, that's great. We also want to have a long-term mentality and think, okay, the work needs to continue. The work needs to have long-term uh, uh, long-term aspects as well. I had a friend ask me recently what I thought our church would be doing in 40 years. That was an interesting question. I'll be honest, I hadn't really thought of it in that sense. I mean, uh, if the Lord tarries that long, that's great. I assume we'll still be a church and still be serving Him. He said, well, what do you think that your church will be doing in 40 years? Now, while we, of course, believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, we hope for it, we also do want to be mindful and thoughtful about what work the future might hold for us as individuals and as families and as a local family, Calvary Hanford. Should the Lord postpone our arrival corporately or individually to heaven, okay, what what am I going to be doing 10 years from now, 15 years from now? What's Calvary Hanford going to be doing 40 years from now to serve him and to honor him and to do the work that he's given us to do? As we look forward to the continuing work of God in our church and in our families and our individual lives, we should consider things like, okay, looking forward, what does it look like? What does it mean to be a faithful, spiritual, fruit-producing grandparent? Or what will the city of Hanford need in 15 years or 20 years? Because we want to be people who are growing and who don't just get stuck in the same patterns forever. We want to be growing in capacity and effectiveness and taking new ground in our service to the Lord. In that parable of the talents and the servants, we see this kind of demonstrated where you have the three servants, right? And the master gives each of them a certain number of resources. And, and a couple of them go out and they say, oh, I, got, I got to figure out investments for my master. I'm going to go out and figure things out. 
and not just think short-term and not just bury this in the ground, but I'm going to go out and see what we can do and then what else can we do and how else can we leverage what the master has provided for me so that I can give him the return that he's looking for. And we think this way when it comes to our own personal investing, right? There are long-term investments and short-term investments. Now, some of you probably go to garage sales and find items you can clean up or improve, and then you flip them online or maybe at a sale of your own. And that's great. That's a great short-term investment. Hey, I took this rusty bucket, I paid a nickel for it, and I turned it into $5. That is an amazing in, you know, return on your investment. Very short-term, and there's nothing wrong with that. But of course, we understand that some investments take a long time to mature, right? Things like deferred annuities, for example, they start paying sometimes decades in the future. The idea is you squirrel a certain amount of money away and you think, well, in however many years, that will come back to me and it'll come back to me bigger. Things like IRAs, 401ks, mutual funds. That's that same idea. It's a long-term investment, right? We understand. I need to thoughtfully plan for something that's theoretically coming a long time down the road. And it's going to take you know, some thoughtful planning and patience and faithful investment, and one day there'll be a great return on those efforts. And so I just connect that to say the Levites were thinking about what the temple would need decades down the line. They're saying this temple eventually is going to need to be repaired. Let's start planning for the, you know, the repairs and the maintenance right now. And so we want to think about God's work and ministry and serving the Lord like that as well. While we're giving ourselves to the needs of today and focused on what's right in front of us, that's great, but also saving some space in our minds for, okay, and Lord, what's something that maybe is coming way down the line? You know, as long as you tarry, I want to be serving you, and so I want to be found just busy for the Lord. I want our church to be found busy for the Lord, doing lots of things, doing new things for the Lord five years from now, 10 years from now, 40 years from now, as long as he tarries. As you read these chapters in Chronicles, you see that there were a lot of different types of work. Guys who watched the gates, guys who were musicians, people who worked with sacrifices, people who were accountants, there were bakers, there were judges, all sorts of work. But they didn't get to pick the thing that they wanted to do, not as individuals and not as a group. Uh, it was assigned to them. Perhaps in some cases, it wasn't what they would have hoped for. Maybe if someone from the Sons of Ladan played a mean harp and would have rather been assigned to the worship team than the oversight of the treasuries, but that just wasn't the plan of the king. It was the will of the king that they were to humble themselves under. When they showed up, they said, oh, they didn't say, these are the following three postings I'm willing to take. They showed up to the king and before his throne and said, what will you have me do? I'll do it. And that's really a great devotional idea for us to think about. I mean, the application to our own service is plain and simple. God is the master builder. God is the king. God is the one who assigns us. Jesus is our head. We are the body directed and controlled by the head. He is to assign, and we are to obey and trust his judgment. This is why it's so important that as individual Christians and in our families and in our churches, we don't say, what do we think is a good idea for Hanford or for ministry or for the next 40 years? The idea is, okay, what does the head say? What is the king decreed? Because he says that he's going to tell us those things and lead us in a particular direction like David was leading the Levites here. And it didn't really have much to do with what the Levites wanted or what they thought their skills were. Now, 
the magnificent difference is that the Bible says, hey, the Lord will give you the desires of your heart as you serve him and humble yourself under his hand and follow after him and seek his heart and all of those things. David couldn't do that, right, for the Levites, but God can do that for us, Jesus our King, but we are to obey and trust the judgment of the Lord as he assigns us and assigns our group here to do what he thinks needs to be done. Now, how were they assigned? Well, here in Israel, it was by the casting of lots. Of course, we've seen in our studies in Acts that we no longer go to the lot for direction. Rather, we're told to seek the Lord and follow the Spirit to find those sorts of answers. We're to search out the Lord's will and discover what particular service God the Holy Spirit has selected us for. It says you discover the good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. And you know, it's God's desire to reveal these things to us so that his work can flourish and expand and continue. He doesn't want to hide these sorts of answers from us or from his church. Not at all. After all, He's purposefully given us various gifts, purposefully given us various callings, purposefully given us various duties, purposefully drawn certain people together in local congregations so that we will all fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. And when we are all doing our special work unto our king, it then helps the other parts to grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. That's what Paul says. The last characteristic of this section of Scripture I'd have us note tonight is that this was an imperative work. It wasn't just some king's vanity project. This wasn't like the hanging gardens of Nebuchadnezzar, right? I want to look great, so everybody go break your backs doing this for me. Not at all. This was an important, spiritual, urgent work, and it was something for everyone to get behind. In chapter 22, we're told that David gave orders, start gathering people together, start gathering material together, start things going. And he tells them in verse 19 of chapter 22, determine in your heart and mind to seek the Lord your God. Get started building the Lord's sanctuary, he said. And in verse 16, we read this. David says, now begin the work and may the Lord be with you. The work was imperative, it was important, and the Lord was going to do it with them shoulder to shoulder. And it wasn't supposed to be a back-breaking burden that they were upset about. It was meant to be a blessing to these servants and to the nation in the wider world. As these children of God served together as a family, doing a great variety of work, generation after generation, the promise was that the world would be changed by the glory of God in their midst. That was the idea and the plan anyway, that they, equipped by God, supplied by His riches, supporting one another, would make a magnificent house famous and glorious throughout the world. Each part of the work was significant and necessary. There was room for countless number of servants, thousands upon thousands, generation after generation. And today the work is even greater because God's people, as we serve him, it's not in the confines of one building in Jerusalem. It's through the global body of Christ everywhere as we're going, going as the temple of the Holy Spirit going out in his power with all of these different walls of separation broken down, everybody marshaled into the service of the king, sent out to do great and fantastic things uh, by his will and through his power. And so tonight, let's determine in our minds and our hearts to seek the Lord our God and continuing, continue honoring him in whatever service he has selected each of us for. Amen?